house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. that you have thought me a bigger fool than I am. He knows. I knew when I married you that you were selfish and spoiled. But I loved you. Do you know a place called Meitan Fu? They've had an outbreak. It's the worst epidemic anyone's seen in a long time. I have volunteered to take charge. You can't be serious about taking me into the middle of a cholera epidemic. Do you think that I'm not? We've been traveling for two weeks. What did you do, swim? No, we didn't come up, River. Came overland. Whatever for? Taking a bit of the countryside, get a bit of sun. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast floating through the Paris skyline after yet another mistress throws us off the Eiffel Tower. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here as always with my co-host, Joe Reed. Uh, the autopsy in this case finds results for cholera. Nothing but <laughs> cholera. Lots and lots Loaded of with cholera. cholera. So love, much cholera. Love question mark in the time of cholera is the alternate title to The Painted Veil. Right. Um, love veiled in the time of cholera. Uh, exactly. Yes. Um, okay, Do we know what so... the title of this movie means? Ah, uh, I was like, when does a veil come involved? What what metaphor are they what going metaphor? to give us? I initially but- thought it was going to be a metaphor for um, white colonialist attitudes towards the Chinese. <laughs> and that didn't That's seem to... That's probably what it is. It's This is based off of a Somerset Mom novel. I'm sure right. that's what it is in the text. You cannot convince me to go read it. Somerset Mom, who I did a little bit of reading up on yesterday, and throughout the time I was reading up on him, all I could hear in my head is that verse from One Night in Bangkok, from Chess, (laughs) that name checks Somerset Mom. (laughs) What do you mean? You've seen one crowded, polluted, stinking town, you... Get tied, you're talking to a tourist. And truly, uh, truly a moment in time for me. Yeah. God, I love chess. Chess is such a good score. Chess is so good. Chess, chess I noted like historic Broadway disaster where like the first Broadway preview was like four and a half hours long or something. Yeah. Because the set kept malfunctioning. The score is by the guys from ABBA. The guys from ABBA. It's literally about international relations and love affairs in a chess tournament it's so wild it's genuinely one of the like craziest things ever like it's of of subject matter and um i saw it i saw a kind of concert production of it in at the Kennedy Center a couple years ago with Raul Esparza and Karen Olivo and like a highlight of my theater going life genuinely I love Raul Esparza and like Karen Olivo doing uh, Nobody's Side 
to my feet at the end of that it was so amazing it was so good Ugh. fully chess only works in concert versions because like the plot of it is terrible terrible but the score is amazing yeah. uh i probably have sent you sporty spice and baby spice doing i know him so well a million times oh like <laughs> one of the greatest broadway duets is i know him so well and yes. the spice girls do it and okay? it's endlessly adaptable you can do it i know um saunders and french did it in a very sort of like comedic style Whitney houston and Whitney... sissy houston did yep. it yep yep um there's a recording with um i forget who else is doing it but adina menzel and someone um uh carrie fox there is also (laughs) julia murney and sutton foster julia murney who also there's a youtube of julia murney doing nobody side in i want to say a rehearsal and she fucking like it's an exorcism it's so much fun to watch it's amazing yeah truly it's given us so many gifts thank you chess including uh for running in my head all last night during my somerset mom research yes anyway Hi. We're Hi. back for our Naomi We're here to talk about series. the Painted Veil, not the musical Chess. Imagine if the ABBA guys <clears throat> made a musical of the Painted Veil. Probably the score would be amazing, but the plot would still be dull. We, like, this was a very watchable movie for me. Sure. But... I don't know about very watchable, but it's watchable for sure. It yeah, was not like, a slog at two hours and four minutes. a bunch of times. It's all right. It's okay. It was okay. It wasn't it wasn't bad. <laughs> From the very opening minutes, I was like, oh right, this is why Alexandre Desplat was um so buzzed for this particular score. It's a really, really wonderful score. The score is incredible. And like the score I kind I had to look it up. I knew it was a Desplat score, but like when you hear it, it's so good that it like sounds like something that already exists in the culture right like the rhythm of it is familiar enough that it sounds like yeah i don't know like what are those like cultural artifacts that always show up in like movies of certain eras very that right but it's not this like swoony snoozy like costume drama score there's a lot of life to it Mm mm-hmm yeah it's one Which of his better scores, and he has, like, a, an incredible body of work. And it is yeah. hilarious to me that if you listen to this score, the one that he was nominated for this year is for The Queen, which I challenge you to recall any of the score elements from The Queen. But that was a Best Picture nominee. Like, it does make yeah. a certain amount of sense that that would be the nominee. Yeah, yeah, I get all of that. But... And plus, Even now we get to talk about work. the Painted Veil on our uh, on our podcast. I know this is one of the movies that we've watched, and maybe this is why it was so watchable to me because I was expecting it to. When we do these type of like period costume adjacent style movies, it's usually like because they're bad. But like watching this movie, it's right. one of the ones that we've covered that I felt most surprised wasn't nominated for something. It could have been a yeah. production design nomination. It the could cinematography have been... is so good in this movie. There's some really, mm-hmm. really beautiful shots in this movie. Um, 
Yeah, I'm sort of I'm 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 falling down a little bit of a Alexandre Desplat hole. I was trying to figure out when he first sort of became a composer's name sort of that we know. He's been doing scores since like the 1980s. So, but I really don't think it was till like Girl with a Pearl Earring and Birth, right? I feel like mm-hmm. those are the movies that like certainly by birth the very sort of um film buff people were were very much into his work yeah yeah totally it's that a little bird. surprising he wasn't nominated for girl with the pearl earring too <laughs> all we always come back to 2003 because that did get craft nominations yeah it definitely it definitely did um he also did the score for the upside of anger which i think is interesting that's yet another reason for me to go and rewatch that movie a movie we definitely need to talk about at some point yeah anyway um, anyway, what were your initial thoughts on the painted veil? This was one that I kind of had to jockey for us to do for our Naomi mini series. Yeah, I was resistant to it because I had seen it before, and I remember being sort of like unmoved by it. Um, I'm still somewhat unmoved by. It. I don't find it too terribly compelling. I think it's sort of easy for me to drift watching this. I did. Um, uh, spark up to Diana Rigg in a way that I hadn't initially because I had yet to see her in um, uh, Game of Thrones. And in this, seeing her, she plays a, a mother superior of this convent who is taking care of children in, um, in uh, what you call it, um, cholera riddled China. China. Um, yeah. Cholera was the word I was searching for, not China. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that big giant country in Asia, you know. Um, um, you know. Cholera. Anyway, yeah, cholera. No, no um, it's cholera. But... I... Guys, take a shot every time we mention cholera oh, boy. during this movie. And then take yourself directly Sorry to your rehab. Um, yeah. Uh, seeing Diana Rigg in a wimple really brought back some wonderful <laughs> memories Truly... of her in Game of Thrones. I, I was not a Game of Thrones watcher, but I am familiar with the Diana Rigg content on Game Good. of Thrones, as I'm sure you can imagine. It's truly the same amount of her face is yes, shown. Yes, it is. In it's just a small little square towel. of face. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's genuinely like... Her character in this movie is the good angel on one shoulder, and yes. her Game of Thrones yes, character is the absolutely. devil on the she's other shoulder. She's so kind and wonderful in The Painted Veil, and she's yes. so acidic and and also wonderful, but like in a very different way in Game of Thrones, yes. Um Weirdly in Game of Thrones, she ended up being like one of the heroes, even though her like main the main um course of action she took in the entire series was to poison a small child but you know that was a thing that and had she to be does done. the opposite in this i'm telling you it's truly the opposite of her game of thrones character yeah yes it's because true. She's, she's healing sick. children in this. healing small children exactly um before we get into the painted veil though do we want to sort of walk ourselves up to the porch of this movie in terms of the naomi wattsness obviously this is film two in our naomi watts series and yes when last we left off she was in the merchant ivory film le divorce that didn't really go anywhere that was released in the summer of 2003 the rest eclipsed by 21 grams that she did get her first oscar nomination for that felt very hard fought i remember that nomination if you were a naomi watts supporter which i was even if you didn't love 21 grams which i didn't but there was a sense of relief that 
only two years after the Mulholland Drive snub, it was just like, oh, okay, she got one. She's like, she got mm-hmm. on the board. She got onto the scoreboard. She got a nomination. Very for much Grams. chasing two very far in front front runners that yeah. year. So she was, like we mentioned, she was probably easily the third place vote. But yes. like anyone who wasn't Diane Keaton and Charlie's Theron, like. Yes. Best of luck to you that year. Right, yeah. She really had no chance. The nomination was certainly the reward, and she got it. And ultimately, she built a reputation with Alejandro Iñárritu that led to her being cast in the ultimate Best Picture winner, Birdman, in 2014. So, which she co-starred with, who? Edward Norton, her co-star from The Painted Veil. It all comes around. It's all circular. But so after 21 Grams, she has a very, very interesting 2004 in terms of independent cinema. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And including my favorite performance of hers. Which, oh, Huckabees that we've talked about. Huckabees. Yeah, I heard Huckabees 2004. We have a whole Huckabees episode for you to listen to. We both love I Heart Huckabees and her work in it. But also that year, she's in We Don't Live Here Anymore, which is very faithful to the episode we're talking about because it's the same director, John Curran, who she pushed to, after she was on board with Edward Norton for The Painted Veil, she kind of nudged John Curran in there because of all the different relationship dynamics that are at play in The Painted Veil. She thought was handled very well in We Don't Live Here Anymore, even though they're incredibly different movies. Um, Yeah. And what's interesting to me is like, yes, I think We Don't Live Here Anymore is a good movie. And like the two marriages that are at the center of that movie, like I think that movie is well-directed, or at least my memory of it is. Laura Dern's incredible in that movie. But Laura like, Dern is incredible in that movie. Also, one of the... Uh, one A really good indie trailer from that era, also, I remember. Yeah. I just wanted to be here with you and get us back and be in this bed, in this house, my husband and my kids where I belong. Also, guess what else is in that movie? A very sexy Mark Ruffalo. A very sexy Mark Ruffalo having an when affair is Mark with Ruffalo. Naomi not Watts? very sexy. We know yeah. how I feel about this, but like the shaggy Mark Ruffalo is in that. Movie. Oh, and it's and he's very sort of chest hair forward in that movie. Also, I remember there was a still photo from before that movie came out that was used for publicity, which was him in bed with Naomi Watts and him just sort of like resplendently hairy chested. And, and she's was... like smoking, right? She's smoking. She's. Uh, if she's not smoking literally, she's like she's spiritually smoking throughout that entire movie. Like, We're all spiritually smoking, looking at that picture of Mark <laughs> Yeah, for um, sure. And of course, we don't live here anymore. Also, a Warner Independent film that mm-hmm. um, we will be. Naomi's talking about. kind of the the queen of Warner Independent for the four years that they were there. She had this. We don't live here anymore. Funny Games, the remake. Yes. Yeah. 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 She was kind of all over that uh we will get into warner independent pictures as we go along um and i want to get into john curran too because like i think that that decision based off of what worked so well and we don't live here anymore is kind of exactly the wrong decision for the painted veil um yeah loop around to that also she also 2004 yes. she has the assassination of richard nixon playing a supporting role to sean penn because those two apparently are buds and can't stop working together. The thing about Naomi Watts that I always think speaks well of her is that she does have these professional relationships that recur. Like she and Mm -hmm. David Lynch 
apparently, you know, I have this great professional relationship. She was obviously in the revived Twin Peaks season. She played a voice of one of the rabbits in that weird rabbit family interlude in Inland Empire. Uh-huh. Um, she's worked with Sean Penn three times, right? 21 Grams, Assassination of Richard Nixon, and Fair Game. I think there's one more, but I no, yeah. can't for the life of me remember what it is, so maybe it doesn't. We real. we just mentioned her and Edward Norton in a um, couple movies together, her and Dinyaritu working together again. I feel like it it speaks to, she must be, I imagine she must be a positive presence on set. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Or somebody who people like to work with. And we've talked about this before, where it's like, she always shows up to whatever movie she's doing like she it's never phoned in like yeah even in like something like birdman makes me i've thought about this since seeing birdman because like that part is nothing and she like it's it's almost an insulting ass when role. she's in it yeah. yeah like on paper it's she's, it's a gross role yeah yeah and she, she does a very good funny and like goes to the emotional extreme of it like yes Agreed. I like Birdman more than you do, but yes, it is almost offensive that she was asked to play that role. I'm eager um, to revisit it, weirdly enough. I'd like to see it again, just to sort of... Um, I'm going to try to watch a lot of the movies that we're not talking about this time. Yeah. Um, so I'll watch that. 2005, The Ring 2, which was a bad idea that never should have happened and doesn't do anything for anybody doesn't make any money doesn't scare anyone it is one the only good thing that the ring 2 did was it had a teaser trailer that scared the shit out of me it was it was just a room that is like steadily growing darker and darker and darker and darker and then like once it hits like peak darkness um this like creepy old lady in the corner of the room sort of like comes animatedly to life and like screams at you and i just like (laughs) fucking freaked out um but otherwise the ring two is very bad there's a um a a scene with deer attacking the one thing i remember about the movie is a scene with deer attacking a car on a on a country road that's and it it. looks like garbage it looks the the visual it's truly one of those horror movie times where the cgi is so bad that it's just impossible to make it scary also it's a movie that takes an an, original movie that had a creepy kid which is a thing that happens in a lot of horror movies and creepy kids are almost always best used incredibly sparingly the ring did a very good job with that little boy where he only said like two or three very ominous sentences and they decide in the ring too oh we're gonna make this whole movie about this kid and it's just like that is a very bad idea yeah but 2000 like go ahead the thing about creepy kids is like they're cast at exactly the right time so when you try to put them at a sequel they're not at the creepy age anymore right right so like the kid also ceased to be creepy yeah 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 But 2005 improves for her at the end. She gives a performance in King Kong that I think is better appreciated now than it was then. She was buzzed for that performance, though. She definitely was. Probably because the movie was in the larger conversation, but like people were also unkind to that movie. There was a backlash to that movie, to Peter Jackson, to sort of the... um, size and scope of everything that he's doing i 
again, King Kong is a movie I should probably go back to, but I remember finding things to really love about it while also being like, did everything in this movie need to be in this movie? And the dinosaur fights. The dinosaur yeah. fights I don't mind. It's there's a lot of stuff with like the people on the boat. And I think as with I don't know. I, I mean, it, it it's it ceases to be interesting at the point where you think it should be most interesting, which is when Anne Darrow, the Naomi Watts character, um, essentially falls in love with the ape or whatever, like becomes a- attached to uh, the giant ape in some form or another. Right? There's a weird uh, kinship happening there to no fault of her own though because i think that's a really great performance and yeah the level of a like believable emotion she's able to conjure truly from nothing like i remember being like one of the advocates for this at the time too because this is also during all of the star wars prequels where like natalie portman has Mm. since been an incredibly and she was at the time outspoken person about how it's impossible to act to nothing yes and like naomi watts needs to be commended for like what she can do and king kong yeah. that like she was just surrounded by screens maybe some of the time andy circus was there yeah during the press tour i don't think he was there was a lot of her acting alone during the press tour for the painted veil she talked about how she either almost didn't do the painted veil or like had reservations about doing it at that time because she was so worn out physically by the demands of uh-huh. the the King Kong shoot. And I think it, she had sort of long been trying to make the painted veil happen as a project. And uh-huh. I think it started with Edward Norton and he got her on board, I believe shortly after Mulholland drive. Right. Yeah, so this had been in the works for a while, and I think if it wasn't a project that had been that they had been trying to make for a while, she might have just said no and like taken a little bit more time off from King Kong. But she didn't, as you said. She recruits John Curran to direct. He is an interesting director in terms of his career. He's made some real interesting films we kind of accidentally stumbled into a quintessential this had oscar buzz director yeah absolutely where uh his movie uh said we don't live here anymore 2004 that's how he and naomi worked together his only other feature film uh before that was a 1998 australian film called uh is it an australian film it might be i don't know called praise um starring nobody i've heard of so oh wait joel edgerton's in this movie it must be australian then um anyway we don't live here anymore than the painted veil then he follows up the painted veil with that movie stone with edward norton uh robert de niro and who else is in this movie Mila Jovovich, right? Mila Jovovich, that movie has right. some advocates. I'm kind of curious to watch. This is it. the movie where Edward Norton is in prison with cornrows. <laughs> That's the one oh. thing I remember from this movie. I He's... didn't remember that, so yeah. maybe I should never watch this. <laughs> it's so. It's also the poster is very funny because it just says stone, and then like there are faces sort of behind the. Uh, it's a floating the face poster. Uh, yeah. De Niro and Norton with like Mila Jovovich in the middle, and they're both above the title, and she's below the title, 
And so, but it, she also looks like the way that this poster is situated, she sort of seems like she's the president of the block of credits because it's just like her move, her name. And then like, it's just like Mila Jovovich. And then just like the block of the block of names in the credits. I've president never seen Jovovich. this movie. I never kind of wanted to see this movie. This definitely had Oscar buzz as most Robert De Niro dramas did. Um, it was a yeah. TIFF movie, I think. That would make sense. Let's see. Where did this... Yeah, TIFF before uh, an October premiere. So, yeah. Wild. Truly wild. Anyway, and then after Stone, he makes... As I return to my John Curran page... Oh, God, Tracks. Tracks, Tracks another Tracks, movie. A movie I will never see. I will. Fu- You've been like, we should do a Tracks episode like way back in the early days, and I fully like pushed us against doing it because all i know is there's a shot in the trailer where a giant snake crawls over her and that Uh means i will never watch that movie um absolutely not this was one of those movies that was on a release schedule for like ever right it kept Uh getting delayed i think it was made like a good weinstein co I think. Oh, is that was that the thing? It's Mia Wasikowska and will I ever say poor Mia Wasikowska's name correctly again? Maybe. Meryl ensured that you will not. Um, Adam Driver's in this movie. It takes place in the Australian Outback, and I just watched the Outback season of Survivor because now I'm someone who watches Survivor. I'm so proud of you, by the way. All right, in in less than a minute. Tell me your your summary thoughts on Austra- Survivor the Australian Outback. On Survivor Outback? Yeah. Um, Tina is a legend and a queen. If there's anything problematic out there about her, please do not send it to me. Um, everybody else on that show is awful. I'm watching a different season now, and I've kind of come to the realization maybe Survivor only casts terrible people. Um, it's- Survivor Amazon is not the most likable cast. The fact that you yeah, didn't like anybody right on now. Australia besides Tina makes me wonder if, cause like I remember like survivor Australia is a fantastic season and I loved it. So, um, I don't know if you can't appreciate Alicia wagging her finger in Kimmy's face. I liked Alicia a lot, but like I knew she wasn't going to last cause they never showed her on the show. Yeah, that's fair. Or like shared her opinion in like a confessional. <laughs> that's fair. Um, Tracks also, by the way, has, I think that's a movie with a trailer with, um, an M83 song in it, you know, as was. You know what that does? It tracks. It tracks M83. Anyway, and then, um, continuing the trio of John Curran films that I have not seen that had Oscar buzz, 2017's Chappaquiddick. With Jason Released Clark. in 2018, though, but 2017 right. TIFF. 2017 TIFF that I remember it played TIFF, and I remember that's where it sort of acquired its buzz. People were talking about, oh, this movie's actually pretty good. Jason Clark. Jason Clark. Actually pretty good. Um, poor Kate Mara with a terrible blonde bob wig playing Mary Jo Kopechny and the ill-fated Mary Jo Kopechny. And wait, maybe I did It's definitely one of those TIFF movies it. where... I'm sure it was one of the ones that, like, we would have said this to each other, where it's, like, just fully open on a schedule with not much competing against it, where it's like, should we go see that? No. <laughs> yeah. And we're gonna uh, have yeah, ultimately decided against it. So, anyway. We're going to eat a full meal instead. Yeah. Why don't we um, kick off this episode in earnest, then, and 
Now that we have set the stage for The Painted Veil, once again, directed by John Coran, written by Ron Nyswaner, um, noted Oscar nominee for the movie Philadelphia, and then it all went downhill from there, based on the novel by Somerset Maugham, starring our queen for the month of May, Naomi Watts, opposite Edward Norton, Toby Jones, her boyfriend at the time, Liev Schreiber, uh, and Diana Rigg, and Anthony Wong. It's really kind of... It feels like we've done so many ensemble movies recently. This has felt like the smallest cast movie that we've done in some time. Yeah. Which is interesting because I definitely have some, a point of view on how that relates back to Naomi that we'll get into. But before we get into that, Joseph. Oh boy, yeah. You are serving up our 60 second plot description this week. I am. I am. We'll see how If you are ready, I will start the timer. Yeah, why not? All right, Joe Reed, your 60-second plot description for The Painted Veil starts now. All right, so Naomi Watts plays a woman named Kitty Fane, who is from a sort of fancy-schmance London family. This is all taking place in, I want to say, the 1920s? Let's see if I'm right. Um, she marries uh, Edward Norton, Walter, who they she doesn't love him, but she needs to marry before her sister gets married. Anyway, Walter is a doctor, but not like a... a fancy doctor, a a government doctor, and he gets sent to China where there is a cholera epidemic. But before this all happens, um, they have this sort of like level. Fuck. She meets Liev Schreiber. She fucks Liev Schreiber. He's like very like charming and whatever. Edward Norton finds out about it and says, lady, you're coming to China with me. And I hope you get cholera from this cholera epidemic. And she's just like, fuck. And she tries to go with Liev Schreiber and he's just like, nah, I don't think so. So she goes to China. He takes like literally like the long way to China. Uh, and this like, like whatever sedan caravan she he wants her to get sick and die of cholera she doesn't um he eventually does get sick and die of cholera by that point they've reconciled and she gets pregnant (laughs) and what did i spend too much time on i spent too much time on her in london huh you spent 20 full seconds on london which is about the amount of time the movie spends on london <laughs> that was one of the more runaway uh, plot descriptions I've tried, and there's not a ton I think of it's plot. One of my in favorite this movie. ever. There's really not that much plot. Certainly you not once they get the to China. Orphanage. Once they get to China, it's like eight billion scenes of her like standing in a doorway looking at cholera patients, or standing in a doorway and looking at like orphans Mountains. in an orphanage. And yeah. ultimately, like, there's a couple really good scenes of her and Norton sort of like arguing and yelling at each other and being like very vicious toward each other and then at some point their relationship just sort of softens and he basically because they fuck yeah he sees that she's not the sort of like spoiled little rich girl he always thought she was and she sees that he's not the like boring dull you know dork or whatever that she always thought he was and they do reconcile and have a child that may or may not be his. I think by the end, we sort of are given to realize that, like, it doesn't matter if it's his kid or Liev Schreiber's kid because she has, she meets Liev Schreiber at the very end of the movie and her son is at like five years old at this point. And right. the kid's like, who was, <laughs> mommy, mommy, who was that man? And she says, who was that man? And she's like, no one important, He's not darling. important. Yeah, 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 yeah. No one important. Um, and Leah Schreiber clearly wants to like get with her again, and she's just like peace. Um, yeah, yeah to show that she's personally grown because this man that she banged, which truly like 
I'm sure some listeners are like laughing because you're like, she meets Leah Schreiber and fucks him. Truly, that's his only function in this movie, which 100%. I think because they were dating at the time and they started dating shortly before they were filming the movie. Right. That knowing that relationship made it seem like Leah Schreiber was so much outsized to what he actually is in this movie. He's barely in this. Leah Schreiber gives a quote at some point where he's like, yeah, Naomi got me cast on this movie because our relationship was so new that we were worried that, like, being apart for the length of that shoot, we wouldn't, like, continue the relationship. So that well, was Well, I mean, she, it's shot on location in China. That kind of makes sense. Oh, yeah, totally. I just, I, I love that he was so sort of, like, frank and honest about it when he said that. Um, I saw them together at Toronto one time when I was waiting to interview... Anne Heche and Sandra O. Oh. And I was sort of in the one sort of, you go to these hotels for these uh, junket interviews at TIFF. And I was basically in like the hallway where all of the big interview setups were happening, where like Vanity Fair was down the hall. They were doing all these video interviews. So like the um, Queen of Katwe people sort of came through and I saw Lupita oh, I and movie. I saw David Yellowa with their like various entourages. And what would Naomi and liev have been in town for that year um isn't queen of cotway the no that's not the birdman year no but wasn't that the year where she was in like um everything i can't mm. remember anyway I forget honestly so it was her I... and liev and the kids and they just sort of like came on through and it was cool it i was remember nice. I... Was I in? I I think I would have been in high school or like just graduated high school. I had a sighting of the two of them um, in New York, and I was with my dad, and like he realized who they were, and I was I just said, "Nope, we are leaving them alone." They have a stroller with them. Leave <laughs> them alone. <laughs> That's sweet. Anyway. Um, yeah, sorry, I did such a poor job with that 60-second one. I think you gave one of the more entertaining ones and one of the most correct ones. Poor yes, Toby there's, Jones. There's a lot more. Yeah. There's more in, like, the orphanage side of it. And, like, this is kind of where... Also, there's a lot, there's a whole subplot about the Chinese nationalists leading up to the revolution in China. I know Chiang Kai-shek gets kind of name-checked at some point. Mm-hmm. And because um, Leif Schreiber plays a diplomat, some sort of member of the State Department, right? Who's like an expert in Chinese relations and is essentially like, yeah, right. like our British standing in Hong Kong or whatever the hell um, isn't going to stand up to whatever, you know, revolutionary actions are happening in China and yada, yada, yada. And there's a lot of this movie where I end up sort of like interrogating whether this movie, like what is this movie doing with its setting with the Chinese stuff? Is it window dressing? I think the movie does try to make the Chinese revolution more than just sort of a backdrop. They try to focus on it a little bit. There's a scene at the very beginning when she and Liev Schreiber first meet Um, she and Norton and Schreiber and his wife go to see Chinese opera together and it's very exotic and I initially was just sort of like my little like orientalism switch flipped and whatever but I was like oh Mm -hmm. okay that's sort of the point of the scene this sense that they are fascinated from afar by this production right 
Yes, and that they are they're fetishizing it in a way. And like I don't know if the movie's interested in enough in that as an it's idea not at the end or of the like day. on a character level to explore that with any real depth. It doesn't. But it does have a certain sense where you know, it's not perfect, but it's not like the worst type of this that you've ever seen because right. like it doesn't have all of these gross characterizations but at the same time it makes all uh like the population that is suffering in china invisible right. at the same time and yeah like that i had a problem with where it's like basically they just become cholera patients or yeah. orphans you know and like that's not great either um yeah I mean, also, I do, I do maybe think that it's more window dressing for this like marital story. And I kind of, my feeling that the problem, the big problem with this movie, and when I read the production history of it, it didn't surprise me, is that it is an Edward Norton problem. Edward Norton is known for having this like big ego, and like he's the one that kind of stirred the project and apparently like said that he really related to the character's journey like his internal struggle which is so funny because his character for most of the movie is an asshole exactly but also like he's not the story right like he should probably be more of a supporting character it's more about her journey it's about these people who are absolutely out of their depth meddling in i mean trying to help but also like yeah being westerners thinking that they can just go over to a disease ridden area and be like the saviors of it you know like the the ignorance of that this is a man who hates his wife for cheating on him and wants to punish her so much that instead of taking the riverboat up to where they're going to be staying in china like has them cross a mountain path with a uh a sedan like they're being carried in a sedan so like the both of them have like these chinese people carrying them on those little sort of like you know elevated whatever um across these like treacherous mountain paths and all you taking the long way the long and dangerous way just to punish his wife like mm-hmm. And then ultimately we're supposed to see him as sort of like a good doctor and that's how she sees him and that's how she ultimately sort of like you know falls for him when she when their relationship thaws was oh he's a good doctor he's a caring person look at him caring for all these people and it's just like yeah but like all that stuff at the beginning still counts but I, I just think that the movie's too invested in his journey in a way that feels really outsized to how little it is invested in her for the movie to essentially be hers for the most part too like it doesn't ever like it feels like it's clicking into whatever this version wants to be whenever he is a part of the conversation and i don't know why the movie wants to be that movie um I don't know. And I think in the long run, she kind of gets screwed about it because like you almost feel like you can't have a best actress conversation about this movie because like the movie's just not as invested in Naomi Watts. I don't know. I think that's right. I think I think that point is pretty well taken. And it doesn't really give her 
the time to, I, I mean, like she has the majority of the screen time, but it doesn't real, it's not as curious in her to give her anything to really do with what yeah. the story is telling. Yeah. So I think when we talk about why the painted veil had Oscar buzz, I mean, where do we, where do we want to begin that conversation? Do we start with the studio? Do we start with Warner? Like the, the brief shining moment of Warner independent. <laughs> The four years of Warner Independent. I mean, I think so, because, like, when this was on their docket for Oscar season, and we know what the movie is because of the novel and the original movie, there's multiple versions of the story been told on screen, but most notably with Greta Garbo. Um, Like, people know what it is. It's a costume drama. It seems exactly up Oscar's wheelhouse, so people are predicting it. Um but like Warner independent kind of flubbed it. And I think like, this is a movie that is actively like not an Oscar nominee because the campaign sucked. Yeah. I think if you look at Warner independent sort of comes around, uh, becomes a thing in 2004, it's first ever film is before sunset, which gets a screenplay nomination. Yes. Uh, yes, it does. Yeah. So I think when you talk about the, like the big successes for Warner Independent as they go through the years and they were around for about four years there was March of the Penguins wins uh, Best Documentary Feature 2005 Paradise Now gets a Academy Award nomination for Foreign Language Film the sort of big early success was Good Night and Good Luck which got a Best Picture nomination among other thing among other nominations in 2005 that's sort of the big kind of step up for them they are ultimately they say it's warner independent obviously the warner kind of negates the independent part right where Mm -hmm. they are this was the era of you know big studios having their little independent shingles obviously fox searchlight is one of the great examples of that but like focus features was that for universal and paramount had paramount vantage and at this era this sort of mid to late 2000s was kind of the the era for all of those little shingles to um, battle it out at the Oscars a little bit. And one of the most interesting things, they also get the uh, Tommy Lee Jones surprise nomination for in the Valley of Ella. And then, but one of the most interesting things is when the company is essentially dying, when it's about to get closed Mm -hmm. up, one of the films on its slate is Slumdog Millionaire, which was a co-production, you know, with, uh, in with England for I want to say film four, and mm-hmm. um, was at, very nearly direct to DVD. Was very nearly direct to DVD because Warner Independent was dying, and then it gets mm-hmm. sold to Fox Searchlight, their rival in you know studio dependent uh, production companies, and Fox Searchlight manages to I think because. A lot of people sort of don't love Slumdog Millionaire or think it's too sentimental or too whatever. I think the success story of that movie gets swept under the rug a lot of bit, a little bit. Like Fox Searchlight, a plus work in getting that movie not only one hundred fifty million dollars or something like that. Yeah, a huge success, an Oscar, like a near sweep of the Oscars. Essentially, it won how many of its nominations? Eight. Of nine nominations, like it was something like that, because it was nominated for two songs, so it didn't win everything. But it is the most. Nothing has gotten eight Oscars since that movie. It was ten nominations, and they won eight of them. So they lo- and one of those losses 
was to itself, right? Because it had uh-huh. two song. nominations in the song category. So the only category where it didn't win, um, that it was nominated in, was sound editing, where it lost to The Dark Knight. But it won, as you said, a total of eight Oscars and just a huge success story. And again, I think some of the criticisms of that movie is a little bit overblown not entirely there's like the criticisms have merit but like this is not some piece of shit movie that like you know pulled the wool over oscar voters eyes to get no i mean like people did organically fall in line with that movie in a way that like i was someone who never liked that movie for a lot of reasons but like it wasn't like this wasn't like Harvey Weinstein pulling over some type of bullshit narrative for this movie. This is a movie that won because that many people liked it. Warner Independent is one of my sort of like, I have my little niches in terms of my Oscar fandom. And I love this era of the studio dependent in, you know, indie shingles. Mm -hmm. I just, it's, it's, it was, you know, what a time to be alive kind of, it was, there's, there was so many, they put so many indie films into theaters and this was when I was still in Buffalo, so I was I, the fact that I was able to get into theaters and see them was, mm-hmm. I think, a testament to using that kind of studio muscle to get indie films into theaters. And it was probably something of a last gasp of that, right before um, we get into the screen, the streaming era, and obviously mm-hmm. where we're at now with the blockbuster dominance of the multiplex. And I don't know, do you feel, do you have that sort of same affection? Oh, no, totally. Like, also, rest in peace, Paramount Classics and Paramount Vantage. Right, there was also Paramount Classics. A little less indie and more like auteur driven. I guess, yeah, the survivors are Sony Pictures Classics and, Mm -hmm. which Sony Pictures Classics have been going on for a while, yeah. For a long time. They're probably one of of the ones we're talking about most removed from the corporate level of it because they have functioned so independently and on their own budgets and like they work on they have more output than some of these studios but they definitely work on a smaller scale as well yeah so i made up a little game for this era of warner independent pictures and i wanted to know if you want to play uh duh of course what if you said no and i had to be like fine (laughs) i just moved on (laughs) so i have taken a handful of the warner independent films from this era as we said 2004 to 2008 and i'm going to give you the names of anywhere from two to four characters that were played by the actors in the movies in question right so i will give you the name of three or four characters and you will and have to realize movie. who those yeah it's not the characters from the movie it's characters that the actors in the movie played in other things right okay well once we'll once we get past the first one you'll know what i'm talking about okay okay so the first question is only two names the characters are troy dyer and zoe has to be a more like contemporary warner independent movie Um, so what i'm asking you is who are the actors who have in other movies played troy dyer and zoe and then what movie were they in together for warner independent so they both play 
played these characters and were in a Warner Independent movie. This one, I don't know. I'm trying to think. That sounds like something that, like, Winona and Keanu would do. So, like, a scanner darkly. Okay, no, but you're on the right track with Winona. Troy Dyer is a character from the film Reality Bites. Oh, right. So Ethan Hawke. Right. And Zoe is the titular character from a movie. Killing Zoe, so it's before sunset. Right. Ethan Hawke, Julie Delpy, before sunset. So you, so do you now sort of get the vibe of, of Yes, what this I get is? the vibe. I get the okay, vibe. Okay, okay. So next question is, your characters are, your three characters are Pierce Patchett, Ryan okay. Bingham, and Adora Krillin. Ryan Bingham is a name that I know. Adora, I know too. Is that can't also be Winona Ryder? No. Ador- Some of these characters are from television. Oh, okay. So the television characters I may not know. You definitely um, know this one because you definitely saw this series. <sighs> This is hard, man. Sorry. Um, it's I okay. I have confidence in you. Give me the three names again. Ryan Bingham, Adora Kreller, and... Adora Krellen and Krellen. Pierce Patchett. Pierce Patchett. That sounds like a name I should know, or some bullshit name from a novel, but I don't The first remember. two characters are from Best Picture nominees. The third is from an HBO miniseries of recent is it, is it criminal? Is Adora Krellen... Maggie Gyllenhaal. No. Adora Ugh. Krellen is from Sharp Objects. Oh, so it's Patricia Clarkson. Is it Good Night and Good Luck? Yes. Do you have any idea who the other two characters? Of course her name's Adora. I'm going to bomb this. Um, Pierce Patchett and Ryan Bingham. Just from uh, knowing that it's Good Night and Good Luck. Any idea? It's got to be... Um, is it Clooney and Strathairn? Yeah, Strathairn played Pierce Patchett in L.A. Confidential. Sure. Pornographer. And Clooney was Ryan Bingham in uh, Up in the Air. Oh. Alright. Next question. Their characters are Dr. Arnim Zola, Benoit Blanc, and Ryan Stone. Okay, I know what Ryan Stone is. I know what Benoit Blanc is. Why? Talk it through. Talk it through. So our listeners. Oh my god, can hear this your is going to make me so embarrassed. Um, I because I know Ryan Stone. Ryan Stone's a woman. Yes. Benoit Blanc. We just talked about Benoit Blanc. What did we talk about Benoit? Why do I know that name? Benoit Blanc should have a sequel. Uh oh yeah, duh, Daniel Craig. Um. In Knives Out. In Knives Out. Ryan Stone is a, is a female actor. She might be like Dr. Ryan Stone. She's... Yeah, I was going to say that. It's something like that. Daniel Craig in a Warner Independent movie. Dr. Zola is, a, is an actor who's in uh, the movie we're talking about today. Oh, okay. So Daniel Craig with either Leah Schreiber... Or Edward Norton or Toby Jones. Oh, it's infamous. Right. So how'd you get there? It's infamous. Yes. Sandra Bullock is Dr. Ryan Stone. Right. So Toby Jones played Truman Capote. Infamous is the other 
Truman Capote <laughs> the movie. The other Truman Capote movie that we could totally do. Right. All right. Next one. You get four names. Uh, Mike Resendiz, Nikki Grace, Adam Braverman, and Valerie Plame. Valerie Plame is Naomi Watts. Is it We Don't Live Here Anymore? Yes. Any clue who the other ones are? Ruffalo, Dern, and Michael Krause. Peter Krause. Yeah. Mike Resendiz is Mark Ruffalo in Spotlight. Nikki Grace is Laura Dern in Inland Empire. And Adam Braverman is Peter Krause on Parenthood. Six Feet Under. No, Parenthood. On Six Feet Under, he's uh, Nate Fisher. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next one. You got some iconic names on this one. Uh, Amelie Poulain. Poulain, Poulain, whatever, French. Uh Hannibal Lecter and Ellie Arroway. Dr. Ellie Arroway. See, Audrey Tattoo is obviously Amelie. I thought this would be a very long engagement, but... Oh, is there a different Hannibal Lecter? Is Mads Mikkelsen in a very long engagement? It's not Mads Mikkelsen, but you're on the right track in terms of a different Hannibal Lecter. Brian Cox is in that movie? Nope. A lot of people played Hannibal Lecter. Who else played Hannibal Lecter that I'm forgetting? Well, you got the movie right. It is a very long engagement. Yeah, it's a very long engagement. It's Gaspard Ulliel from uh, Hannibal Rising. <gasps> yeah, yeah, because of Hannibal Ulliel. How do we, how do we pronounce that name? Was. Gaspard Ulliel? I don't know. And Ellie we... Arroway, of course, Jodie Foster in Contact. In Contact. All right, your next one. Jonathan Harker, Abigail Williams, and Tony Stark. Okay, so Robert Downey Jr. I, I thought first one's familiar. What was Robert Downey Jr.? Imagine the one? name Jonathan Harker in a very, very bad English accent. Uh, so Keanu Reeves? Uh-huh, from what? Because it's a Dracula movie. Yeah. Keanu Reeves and Robert Downey Jr. And imagine Abigail Williams as a hysterical um, pre-colonial woman. That sounds right. Um, is that also Winona Ryder? Right, from? Oh, so it's a Scanner Darkly, duh. Yes. Keanu Reeves, uh, Jonathan Harker in Bram Stoker's Dracula, Abigail Williams is Winona Ryder in The Crucible, <laughs> and Tony Stark <laughs> is Robert Downey Jr. in Iron Man and such. All right, next one. Um, Jack Mulligan, Loretta Lynn, and Jenny Curran. Curran. Well, obviously, Loretta Lynn is Sissy Spacek. Jack Mulligan is a name that I remember. I'm probably going to get these more off of the Warner Independent movies, because that's what I remember and not character names. Um, Jack Mulligan is a, is a f- character from a recent film that you f- we both fucking love. And Jack Mulligan. Jack Mulligan, is that Widows? Uh-huh. Widows, Colin... F- no, it's got to be um, Robert Duvall. Does it? Or it's Colin Farrell. And it's one Jenny, of those two. Jenny Curran, uh, it might be easier if I pronounced it as Jenny. Oh, Robin Wright. Right. What the hell were they in together? It's not that movie... No, that wasn't Warner Independent, the movie where Robin Wright is animated as well no um, that i always the congress, remember the movie but not the, the name congress. Yeah, no, the no, congress no 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 this was based off of a novel by um the person who wrote the novel 
that one of my perhaps my very favorite movie of all time is based on your favorite movie of all time i don't even know what that is um what movie do i talk about constantly um few good men no social media and uh here and everywhere the hours right oh michael oh it's a home at the end of the world yes good job all right an episode we could do um this next one might be tough i'll help you out uh sheriff sheriff ed tom bell meredith vickers and reggie (gasps) love meredith vickers is a name that i know it is Charlize theron yeah uh in prometheus prometheus yeah what what was the third name again reggie love i know that name too yeah it's a movie we've talked about a bunch recently really okay especially for a recent uh episode that we did that uh where the author's novels were in question okay why is that not clicking charlie's in warner independent movie Reggie Love was a Oscar-nominated performance. Okay. From the 90s. Is that Sam Jackson? Uh, no. no. It's, it's uh, step out of your gender essentialism for a second. Oh! Oh, duh. Um, God, this is so embarrassing. I don't know. Um, why can't I think of Warner Independent movies? There's not that many. Um... Help me out on Reggie Love because I know it's embarrassing. I'm not getting this. Okay. Um, a lady Oscar nominated performance Obviously. that was like the year before she won. Um, oh, oh, based uh, from a, based on a novel by a very, very successful 1990s novelist who we did one of his films recently, like very recently, perhaps starring Matt Damon. I can't even remember what our recent episodes are. Oh, oh, duh. It is a, um, it's a Grisham novel. Right. Did a performance before they won. Who's that? Grisham novel. Best Actress nominee. Kind of came out of nowhere and everybody was just like, is that really Oscar caliber? But it is because it's a fantastic movie. What are the big Grisham movies? Time to Kill. Uh Uh-huh. Um, the firm. Uh huh. The client. Uh huh. Oh, is it Sarandon? Yes. <laughs> yeah, Susan Sarandon. Character's name is Reggie Love. I never would yeah. have gotten that. Um, yeah. All right, and so the lead in this played Air- Sheriff Charlie Ed Tom Bell in and a Sarandon. in a Best Picture winner. Played what in a best played picture Sheriff winner? Sheriff Ed Tom Bell in a Best Picture winner from the two thousands. Eastwood. Nope. Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, yes. God freaking bless. It is in the Valley of Ella. It took me that long to get in the Valley of Ella. All right. This next one. Wow. Salvador Dali, Anna Karenina, and Selena St. George. Uh, it, it It's the jacket. It is Adrian Brody and Kieran Knightley. And who played Selena St. George? Great question. I don't remember anyone else in the jacket. Jennifer Jason Lee in Dolores Claiborne. Yes. Yes. All right. Yes, next yes. one. Ava Gardner, Bob Fosse, and young William Miller. 
Can you say those again? We had a um... Ava Gardner, Bob Fosse, and young William Miller. Um, Kate Beckinsale. Uh huh. In the aviator. Bob Fosse, Sam Rockwell. This is Snow Angels, the David Gordon Green. Yes. Movie. Uh, Bob Fosse played by Sam Rockwell and Fosse Verdon. Young William Miller is Michael Angarano in Almost Famous. See, I you're absolutely getting better love that I can remember Snow Angels, but I can't remember <laughs> the client. Great. Uh, next one Anne Darrow, Prince Rainier, and Mason Verger. Tim Roth is Prince Rainier. Mason Verger is Gary Oldman. Or? <sighs> Tim Roth, Gary Oldman. Mm. In a Warner Independent movie. I would say don't put hang your hat on Gary Oldman. As we've talked about with Hannibal Lecter, different people in different Michael things. Pitt? Uh-huh. From Hannibal. Okay, so Michael Pitt, Tim Roth. Oh, it's Funny Games, the remake. Right. And Darrow is, of course, our Naomi Watts. And Darrow is also Naomi Watts. In King Kong. All right, last one, and then I'll uh, put you out of your misery. Um, Cookie Fleck, Jennifer Jolie, and C. Montgomery Burns. Okay, Jennifer Jolie is fully... The the character in the movie, and I just can't remember what it is, is fully like a riff on trying to be like, this is what Angelina Jolie is. Um, Fleck. I know the Fleck one. Mm. Think comedy. Think improvised comedy. Oh, it is. It's got to be for your consideration. Jennifer J- Jennifer Jolie is um, from a horror movie. Yes, Parker Posey and Scream Three. Yes, Cookie Fleck is who? Cookie Fleck is Catherine O'Hara in one of the other Christopher Guest movies. In Best no? in Show. Yep, in Best in Show. Yep. And C. Montgomery Burns is Harry Shearer on The Simpsons. Yes. Well done. That was the hardest game you have ever I didn't think it was going to be as hard as it was. I I think I underestimated um, how sort of fleeting character names can be. Yeah. I think if I ever yes. do that again, I will make... <laughs> you did pick distinct character names, so I, I truly th- think it comes down to me being a dum-dum. I think I could... I think certain ones I... I could have picked more distinct character names. I think I initially, I made some changes on the fly. Uh, instead of Anna Karenina for um, Kira Knightley, I initially had Cecilia Tallis. And I don't know whether you would have been able to recognize <laughs> that initially as. Of course I would. Of course. How can I? Tallis is very, dis- I would never forget Bryony Tallis. So I would get the, I would. All right. I'm going to force you to watch the client soon because uh, we can we can totally watch the client you need to have um, reggie love emblazoned in your brain somehow yeah yeah and get snow angels out of my brain yeah um all right back to the film warner the independent game. though warner independent is like you would think that they could do better by this movie after doing so well by good night and good luck just the previous year which, like, obviously, very, very different movies. Like, Good Night and Good Luck had a whole political bent that, like, really made people passionate about that movie. And this is just kind of, like, standard. As much as I don't like the phrase Oscar bait, this is very Oscar baity. The type of thing that, like, 
they could have multiple nominations for this movie. The problem was the post-production on this took so long, they didn't really get marketing materials out there enough, and the screeners for this arrived so late in the season that, like, people didn't really see this thing until the season was formed up, right? Like, so it becomes an afterthought when people have already started to make up their mind about certain things. You can't really, even though Edward Norton got some nominations like Indie Spirit, you can't really hang it on Edward Norton. And it's still like at the point for him where his reputation is coming back around because like he's known for having such a huge ego. I don't think it really goes away, but like something about Birdman made it seem cuddly or charming or whatever. Right. Um, Interesting that you mentioned the Independent Spirit Award nomination for Edward Norton. That's an interesting uh, year for the Spirits. That was the year that Little Miss Sunshine won the big categories uh, in Mm -hmm. picture and director. Um, Norton is nominated alongside Aaron Eckhart for Thank You for Smoking, who had been a Golden Globe nominee that year. Um, Forrest Whitaker for a movie called American Gun that I don't remember um but it sounds very you know important subject matter and probably tragic somebody certainly dies in that film called american gun um ahmad razvi for man push cart which was i I recall that being a big sort of um indie sensation that year in a very Mm -hmm. sort of like limited manner and the winner that year was eventually an oscar nominee ryan gosling in half nelson that was sort of the great performance if there is an oscar nominee in your field of indie spirit nominees the oscar nominee will probably win and that was a big one the thing about forrest whitaker too is that for i'm guessing for some reason last king of scotland would would not have been eligible probably either because it was too the budget was too high and past what they set their limit at or it was considered for them an international film yeah i don't i would imagine that that was not uh, an american film the spirits are of course for american films um yeah. even if yeah. you're in english but you're a british film they'll uh, based on right. your funding they'll deem you international right and of course that was the year that whitaker wins the oscar for the last king of scotland um the -hmm. interesting thing also about half nelson is sharika epps actually won best female she's so good she's so good in that movie it really bums me out that her career wasn't able to you know sort of continue on in a major way after that Mm -hmm. she beats out among others our friend Catherine o'hara for for your consideration uh patron saint of this had Oscar Buzz, who you hear at the beginning of every episode. For your consideration, which, like, I don't want to go too in-depth on it, because we could talk about... I've always joked that it should be our last episode um, <laughs> whenever we would ever dream of ending this podcast. Um, it's so interesting that, like, For Your Consideration kind of became the Warner Independent de facto, like, primary push because the painted veil wasn't ready um yeah because like that's what that whole movie spoofs um right yeah (laughs) and it's sad that the painted veil does sound very home for purim uh as a title (laughs) sort of like very non-specific and uh 
Uh, also, Ron, Ron Nicewaner gets a nomination at the Spirits that year for Best Screenplay, ultimately losing to Jason Reitman for Thank You for Smoking. But the other nominees that year include Nicole Holofcener for Friends with Money, great nomination, and Neil Berger for The Illusionist, the other magician movie starring who? Our friend. Edward Norton. Edward Norton. Yeah. So interesting things movie. all around that's an interesting best director lineup at the spirits that year it's jonathan dayton and valerie ferris win for little miss sunshine they are they came from music videos they of course directed among other things the smashing pumpkins tonight tonight video um they win they beat out robert altman for a prairie home companion excellent nomination ryan fleck for half nelson great karen moncrief for the dead girl and Soderbergh, Steven Soderbergh for Bubble, a very interesting and odd and deeply indie movie. That was one of those ones where Soderbergh's just like, give me a budget of a dollar fifty, and yeah. I'll just sort of come up. With Not something. the biopic of my favorite, absolutely fabulous character, <laughs> it, it, as it maybe should be, because what the hell else is that movie about? Yeah. Um, documentary about the physics of bubbles. I don't know. Sure. Yes. Um, the other awards body that gave the Painted Veil some love are good friends at the AARP Movies for Grown Ups Awards. Best Grown Up Love Story nominee. Joe, do you have these pulled up? I can. What it is nominated against. I have it. It is insane. I would never make you guess this. Oh my God. It's so weird. <laughs> it is like. It, it, it's always so easy to be like, this is a 30 Rock TV show, or this is a 30 Rock movie, but truly, these are 30 Rock movies. There's a nominee called Keeping Mum, which is, like, the poster <laughs> is Maggie Smith with, like, a finger to her mouth, like, Keep how Mum, many, like, you know, How many secret. movies is Maggie Smith going to do that are like this? This is so, this has big Lady in the Van energy. This has big, um... My Old Lady? Was that the movie yeah, that she was she, in? Yeah, she was literally in a movie called My Old Lady. The cast um, list on this, by the way, and they're all on the poster, uh, in sort of like diagonal, backwards fashion. Maggie Smith, who, Rowan Atkinson, Kristen Scott Thomas. The grown-up love story is between, apparently, Kristen Scott Thomas and Rowan Atkinson, which is the most Who appears to have a I've priest's collar on in this poster, so great. Um, and then Patrick Fantastic. Swayze. Lord knows. Um, Damn. We're hunting this movie down. I'm going to make you watch it. A pastor. Whatever the hell it is. Keeping Mum very much in the ghost don't do it universe the, the, from the, previous episodes. The plot description in IMDb. A pastor preoccupied with writing the perfect sermon fails to realize that his wife is having an affair and his children are up to no good. <laughs> this is absolutely a Balderdash answer. Remember Balderdash when I you do. would have to come up with movie plots? Yes. That that was absolutely on a card. All right, um, so Keeping Mum doesn't win. Neither does The Painted Veil. Uh, another 30 Rock movie, Aurora Borealis. <laughs> the love story is between Louise Fletcher, Donald Sutherland, but the top billed cast member is Joshua Jackson. Joshua Jackson and Juliette Lewis. Again, floating heads in a poster. Um, mm-hmm. Joshua Jackson wearing a very comf- comfortable looking cable knit sweater. Could Donald- literally be about anything because it is titled Aurora Borealis. Exactly. The tagline is love is the hardest job to hold. The mm-hmm. plot description, a troubled young man struggling to write himself after the premature death of his father. Um, so this movie seems to, the grown up love story seems to be a subplot. As you mentioned, Louise Fletcher, Donald Sutherland, 
The winner in this category is also a movie about young people who the love story is a subplot, which is The Last Kiss, the Zach Braff Jacinda Barrett movie. Now we have officially We are the about... keepers of the <laughs> Jacinda Barrett's cinematic legacy here at this Hat Oscar Buzz. So this is written by Paul Haggis, um, directed by Tony Goldwyn of uh, Ghost and Scandal fame, starring Zach Braff. Jacinda- Zach Braff is torn between Jacinda Barrett and Rachel Bilson in this movie. Like if you and it's looking a for remake reasons of to an- Zach Braff. Uh- it's a remake of a foreign language Oscar nominee, right? Right. Yes. Um, uh, Truly, a Gabrielle Muccino product. Movie. This yes. movie, um, but the best, the grown-up love story in this one is Blythe Danner and Tom Wilkinson. So, who, by the way, get with and credit on the poster? I think they're his parents. I think that makes sense that they play Zach Braff's parents in this movie, and they have. A grown-up love story. It's you know. are they or are they not the last kiss in the movie? The last kiss. <laughs> let's hope so. Let's uh, let's truly hope so. Yeah, what a wild and wacky year for that category at the AARP Movies for Grown-ups Awards. No fifth nominee. So, but you because look- <laughs> I guess James McAvoy and the camera for Last King of Scotland were deemed ineligible. I suppose it makes sense because if you look at the big nomin the big uh films of that year, so you look at the best director nominees. So it's Clint Eastwood for both Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima. He wins. Not a love story to be found there. You can't give Dream Girls a nomination for Best Grown Up Love Story, because like all of those relationships are toxic. The Departed, no. United 93, no. And the Queen, no. So, like, also, they really did have to kind of dig among the big movies for them. Best movies for grown-ups that year was best movie for grown-ups that year was The Last King of Scotland. Again, not a love story to be found. Seven nominees. They didn't that year. see the fountain. Why not the fountain? Seven he nominees. Transcends that year. space and time for his love. Best movie for grown-ups, Last King of Scotland beats out Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima. Again, old people love Clint Eastwood. Um, Little Miss Sunshine. You could have gotten a grown-up love story out of Tony Collette and Greg Kinnear in that one, maybe? Anyway, The Queen, The Illusionist, and our friend Aurora Borealis. (laughs) One of the seven (laughs) nominees for Best Movie for for Grown-Ups that year. What a time to be alive, truly. (sighs) <sighs> Two other big things that we should mention. We started the episode talking about uh, Alexandre Pla and his score for this movie. We both think that it is very good. Yes. I think it's kind of shocking that it wasn't a nominee, especially because like Dupla would still go on to be a double nominee if you're going to say he's getting nominated for The Queen because it's a Best Picture nominee. But that was his first nomination. It was his first right? nomination at the Oscars. He had... He really hadn't been able to crack into, I mean, the original score and cinematography both seem to be very um, boys club uh, categories at the Oscars, where they will close ranks and sort of keep to their own council and only let in new new people sparingly. They only get mm-hmm. like one new... Uh, you know, recruit every year, right? So Desplat took a while there. Like and then, does. except for what? Uh, I said just like cinematography often does too. Yeah, yes. Um, and I, I even after Desplat won 
or got a, his first nomination, it took until the Grand Budapest Hotel, right, for him to win. Mm-hmm. So that's like, that's a long ass time. That's the year that he's double nominated. What else did he, he won for Shape of Water, too? I love that score. The but, score um, nominees at the Globes that year were so much better than the Oscars. Uh, that not only did Desplat win for Painted Veil, but another nominee that did not get an Oscar nomination was Clint Mansell for The Fountain. One of like one of my top three favorite scores ever. It's so fucking good. I know that nobody understood The Fountain and nobody wanted to give that movie any love, and that's fine. But you can very, at the very least, recognize the fact that that score A slaps and B would go on to be in, like, every third movie trailer for the next seven years. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Most memorably for me in the trailer for The Mist, where you hear it in the background of Marsha Gay Harden very memorably saying, We want the boy. You can't go out. I won't allow it. Won't allow it? It was them! Brung down the final wrath upon us! We want the boy! That's what brung down the wrath of God! It's so <laughs> good. Damn it. Anyway. Other nominees that year were Hans Zimmer for The Da Vinci Code. Sure. And um, a movie called Nomad. What was Nomad? I um, think this was a Miramax movie. It's a, Kaza- a movie Weinstein from Kazakhstan. Amazing. A Kazakh historical drama. Yeah, Weinstein Company. Jesus Christ, the movies that they would get nominations for. Yeah. The song nominees that year are even wilder. So that's when Happy Feet wins with the Prince song, the song of my heart. Um, but like that was when Bobby got a song nomination for uh, Never Gonna Break My Faith. Obviously, from Listen Aretha from Dream Girls is great. Um, the Seal song from The Pursuit of Happiness. <laughs> and a Sheryl Crow song from a movie called Home of the Brave, an Erwin Winkler movie called Home of the Brave, starring Jessica Biel and Samuel L. Jackson and 50 Cent and Christina Ricci, obviously. Wow. About soldiers returning from war. Sure. Okay. Yes. Again, was this a Weinstein Company movie? Um, No. MGM. All right. Sure. Possibly. That seems like an August, early September movie. Uh, December. They December nominated release, because actually. Sheryl Crow. Yes. Yeah, the Golden Globes will nominate uh, stars for their best original song category in a way that the Oscars won't always. So, yeah, wild times. It was times, also, the Painted Veil also did well with National Board of Review. It feels like the most National Board of Review movie possible. Was so, this like, the year that Melissa Etheridge won the Oscar, though, for An Inconvenient Truth? Yes. It's wild that they that the Globes wouldn't have gone for that because she is also, you know, a name and star. I feel like they I mean, I could look this up, but I don't think they do the documentary thing. Oh, that they don't consider song the way that, that Oscar does. That they don't consider documentaries in any categories. That's interesting. No, I don't think it's that it's ineligible. I just think Oscar, the Oscar it. music branch is way more likely to nominate the documentaries yeah and i guess award them in this case that makes sense national board of review though strangely they did their best picture of the year and their top 10 but like they 
they did a true 10 and then pulled one of them, which was um, Letters from Iwo Jima. Can I try and there. guess the other the other uh, 10? Yes. So you need to guess nine, one of which is The Painted Veil. So there was a 10 and one of the 10 was Iwo Jima. Letters from Iwo Jima. So, so you need to guess eight movies. All right. So Iwo Jima, Painted Veil, and then eight more. The Queen. No. No. Wow. All right. That's wild. Little Miss Sunshine. Yes. The Departed. Yes. Babel. No. I I hesitate saying Babel. Babel is on there, yes. It is. Okay. All right. So those three. Pan's Labyrinth. No. Uh I'm already faltering. Okay. Um did I guess Dream Girls? Uh not that I heard, but it is not on there. Jeepers. Okay. So what have I got? I got three of eight. Uh, you still are waiting on, yes, five more movies. United 93. No. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid. Okay, what is, their their best picture was Letters from Iwo Jima. Oh, Flags of Our Fathers? Jesus Christ. Flags of Our Fathers is on there. They love Clint Eastwood so fucking much. Okay. Um, we have three more movies that would be eventual acting nominations at the Oscars, and one that is probably even more of a This Had Oscar Buzz movie than The Painted Veil. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. The three ones that got acting nominees would have been, um, well, not The Devil Wears Prada, probably. Uh, Notes on a Scandal? Notes on a Scandal. Yeah, man. Good job. All right. All is forgiven. Um... Notes on a scandal. Pursuit of happiness? No. Okay, good. Um, you might need to backtrack something you said. What would I have said? About what might not have shown up on this top ten. Oh. I thought I said that about Babel. Did I say that about something else? You did say it about something else. Okay. That I don't think it would be... Oh. Devil Wears Prada? Devil Wears Prada. No shit. Yep, That's they put amazing. it in their top 10 films of the year. Good That's for them. That's fantastic. Good for them. All right, so one more okay, that was an so acting nominee. One, one that was a double acting nominee and one that is definitely a This Had Oscar Buzz movie. Blood Diamond. Blood Diamond is on yeah. the top Bling, 10 films. Bling Bang, Blood Diamond got a nomination. And one that would be a This Had Oscar Buzz contender from 06. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, bad movie? No. No. I think it's a good... I, th- I think it's okay. good. I mean, like, is it, like, stodgy? Yes. Could it have been a much better movie? Yes. Um, <laughs> adapted screenplay contender. Definitely a contender for a performance that was campaigned and supporting, and people had feelings about that. Oh, but it was also, huh? I said interesting. This also came with like a really high pedigree and awards history that like the movie was very show me, right? Like, can it match that success? And it just was not prepared to. So from the director of an Oscar winner? Or maybe this is an adaptation. Oh, All the King's Men? No. Okay. Stage adaptation. Oh, History Boys. 
the history boys which yes uh yes that makes total sense that makes absolute total sense wow what a crazy year the history boys being in the national board of reviews top 10 films of the year is like quintessential national board of review to me yeah history boys i have uh, a warm spot in my heart for absolutely yeah Saw that movie when I was in New York City over Thanksgiving in 2006. Saw that one and Volver on the same day at two different movie theaters in New York. One of which is no longer there. The um, uh, Whatever the hell was it called on Houston. That's where I saw um, Volver. Sad. Uh Anyway, yeah. Uh, What else? What else do we want to talk about? Painted Veil, like... I truly do think that, like, this is a case example, especially in the mid-2000s, the level of which festivals and especially screeners played an important role in establishing Oscar contenders. Because this is a movie that I'm like, it could have been a costume nomination, it could have been a production design score, any of those number of type of nominations, even cinematography, and it's like, it truly comes down to people not seeing the movie, even though it was heavily predicted. Yeah. Be- like, this feels like... Screeners seem to matter less more and more to me these days. Yeah. Or, like, maybe they're just taken for granted. But, like, this movie could have been fine if it had played a festival and seen been actually seen by people or there were screeners out. And it didn't happen until... Right before the movie opened. Yeah. I do still feel like this movie falls victim to one of the things that I talk about a lot on this show, which is the increased difficulty for costume dramas and literary adaptations to make headway at the Oscars unless they're really doing something different, right? Unless Uh they're doing something like what Greta Gerwig does with Little Women or what Joe Wright does with Anna Karenina or do you know what I'm you know what I mean mm-hmm. like there are certainly exceptions to that but i think it's difficult for you know it's i think the days of merchant ivory you know dominating the nominations with howard's end is probably behind us which mm-hmm. is or the movie just has to be better that's too. the thing it, but like, it has to it be has like to be howard's end great. level of good yes yeah 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 and this is ap- and this isn't like i don't i don't think this is a terrible movie like we've definitely done a lot worse movies, but yeah, at, it's it's not it's setting the world on fire to the point where it's like when you already have a race that's really firmed up, and at that point it was Dreamgirls was still considered a front runner, but you also have like the organic exciting story happening with The Departed, which originally was not seen as an Oscar movie, right? Or at least was not promoted to be like that was their backdoor like maneuvering yeah and then you have like Babel coming on heavy as like the grim uh, global drama yeah and also good night well good good night and good luck previous year sorry talked about it a bunch this episode um yeah it's hard for a movie like the painted veil to get ahead i think that's right um the john curran thing i guess is the last thing like it's interesting to me that because he did the marital drama so well with we don't live here anymore is what got him the job on this movie yeah because that almost feels like part of the problem like it should be more of naomi watts's story and like personal journey yes and it's or like 
I guess the he doesn't make the costume drama elements of this all that exciting. So yeah. I think that was an interesting directorial choice because that's not what works well in this movie, I uh, guess. Agreed. The I've, marital drama side of it. Yeah. I think if that's a more compelling story, then we've we've got something else on our hands. I think that's right. I think the more the more interesting scenes in the movie, weirdly, are her and Toby Jones and watching the two of them mm-hmm. sort of um as I mean, Toby Jones isn't really an outsider, but he's sort of uh kind of bending the rules and he's got the Chinese mistress and this whole thing, and he's got kind of uh an interesting perspective on everything that's going on. And he'll sort of like raise an eyebrow when he asks them why they didn't come up the river. And he kind of sees through their marriage, right. You know, from the outset. So he and Naomi yeah. have a couple really interesting scenes together. I thought. I like Toby Jones. I do too. Um, but you're right that that's a, an interesting dynamic, at least that works outside of the framework of what this costume drama is supposed to be. So it, like, it makes it a little bit more exciting to watch that. Yeah. Um, just sort of going through my notes before we hit the IMDb game, we talked about Orientalism, Diana Rigg in a wimple, um, <laughs> Naomi with her blossom hat at the end. It was a very, very, you know, a hat that would have fit in very well with the NBC sitcom Blossom. Um, oh, a couple, <laughs> I wrote down a couple of lines of dialogue from this movie that I thought really kind of landed with a thud, like no, no. Real shade to Ron Nicewanner, who is, I think, a very good screenwriter. But there's one point where, and maybe it's the delivery on one of these, but Naomi, uh, when early on in the movie where she's like, she asks him a question and he doesn't answer. And he's like, oh, I didn't really have anything to say. And she says, if nobody talked unless they had something to say, the human race would soon lo- soon lose the power of speech. And she delivers it in this like really kind of deadpan way that like, I'm just like, what is this line reading? It sounds <laughs> so strange coming out of a human's mouth. And then later on, when they're having one of their arguments, she says, we humans are more complex than your silly little microbes. And I was like, that's amazing. First of all, your silly little microbes. It's, it's the kind of line that you would, you would hear in like countless movies about like frustrated wives and their, and their husbands with their nose in a book all the time or whatever. And yeah. Um, yeah. Or like conta- in the third act of Contagion. <laughs> yeah. Also, the experience of watching a movie about uh, an epidemic outbreak. We thought we were avoiding it by not doing Contagion. Truly. And we ended up doing an epidemic movie. <laughs> Great. Great. Thanks. Yes. All those people dying of cholera. Um, yeah. Anything else? Any last thoughts before we head into the IMDb game? Um. I don't know. This one feels very specific to the things that we've talked about that have kind of run through Naomi Watts's career, where it's like, it's a perfect on paper decision to do for the role. And it's like, it's a lead role. It's one of the ones that should have like thrust her forward, but like the movie's so disinterested in her. Yeah. That like, I don't know. This one's going to probably feel like the poster child for everything we're talking about with her career for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think coming off of the King Kong thing where it was close enough to King Kong that not a lot of, not enough time had passed for like 
appreciation for her in that movie to really kind of blossom into mm-hmm. some kind of like, well, you know, she, you know, maybe we owe her a makeup or something like that. And then it, it wasn't, wasn't enough time. Right. Alas. Should we move into the IMDb game? Let's. Hey, how about the IMDb game? How about every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. And if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints, much like uh, The Painted Veil was a free-for-all of cholera. Right. Yes. The IMDb game in the time of cholera. Exactly. Yes. All right. Would you I, like to give or guess first? Why don't I give first? Um, Alrighty. What do you have for me? So this one may be a little challenging for you. I feel a little bad giving you a challenging one um, on the You've heels been a of real this dick to me game. Lately. Yeah, I, 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 I'll own that. Um, the my intentions were pure. I went through the Ron Nicewander connection. Obviously, he. Uh, screenwriter for Philadelphia, much celebrated. In Philadelphia, okay. one of the more intriguing actors in that film was Antonio Banderas. So, Aww. yeah, Chris, why don't you, you hit me with your Antonio Banderas guesses? Okay, Antonio Banderas. Um, I'm. It's a matter of do I think there has been enough time for Pain and Glory to show up on there? Recent movies are a bit of a but some challenge. stuff is starting to show. It's true. Up, I'm still, uh, I'm still gonna say no on that one for now. All right. So I'm gonna say Evita. No, not Evita. <sighs> Y'all stupid. Um, Mask of Zorro. Correct. The Mask of Zorro. Y'all, everyone's about to really piss me off if The Mask of Zorro wasn't on there. <laughs> um, I still feel like another Pedro Almodovar is going to be on there. But <laughs> I just wonder if any of those 80s ones are going to be on there. He's got to be top build for something, though. Um, I'm just going to say the skin I live in. The skin I live in is correct. I am in. Yeah, I knew a Pedro would be there. That is a terrible Pedro movie and really offensive. I don't um, like it. I think that was. I think I didn't finish that movie. I think I stopped it in the middle. I mean, the twists in that movie. People talk about how Soap Dish is offensive oh. and anti-trans. This movie is fully like. I think by not intentionally and like it's trying to be subversive but like i do think that that is a transphobic ass movie oh wow Um, okay uh okay antonio banderas i have one wrong there's got to be an action movie on there that's not the zoros i'm gonna say assassins not a bad guess for assassins um Assassins has that gif of him leaning back and doing Is the, that what mm, that gif is from? It's from Assassins. I'm pretty sure that's Assassins. That was like late 90s. It's right? either Assassins or whatever the same era of Antonio Banderas action movie is. There's one that's like a sexy one. Richard Donner Maybe directed that. that off of a story by Lana and Lily Wachowski. I did not realize that. 
Yes, that I knew. Um, Stallone, Banderas, and our girl Julianne Moore. If I'm wrong and it's not Assassins, it's definitely in like the same three-year period as Assassins. Yeah, so you've gotten two wrong. So your years are 1999, so you're right, about within three years of Assassins, and 2003. Um, Our good friend, 2003. Yeah. Uh, 99 has got to be 13th Warrior. Yes, and seriously, fuck you for getting for being that able to remember. Production. I will never. I I will always remember that because I saw that in the theater and was like, "What the hell is this?" Um, Directed by John yeah, McTiernan. I can remember, and like, I remember seeing it shortly after the big now like shitty mall theater opened. Oh wow! Never saw it. Yeah. Directed by John McTiernan, and it says uncredited director Michael Crichton. It was based on a Michael Crichton novel. Yeah, that that whole movie has a whole production history. Oh boy! If I can place when and where I saw a movie, I, I'm not going to forget the movie. Um, okay, 2003. Yes, 2003. Hmm. He is well. I, I won't give you a clue unless you, it seems like you need. I'll, I'll let you make a guess first. 2003, you think it would be more top of mind because we spent so much time talking about 2003. You would think. This is definitely a movie I saw in theaters, which is not a clue for you, but I'm just saying. 2003. He is top build, but he got the movie sort of stolen out from under him by another actor who, at this point this year, was like had reached a new career peak. Once upon a time in Mexico, it's Johnny Depp because like that movie didn't really have any type of conversation for Oscar, but like, I remember the like critical and audience response to Johnny Depp. in that movie was very much piggybacking on people already making a moment out of him because of Jack Sparrow. Right. This is the third in the mariachi movies. Uh, Banderas uh, uh-huh. and Salma Hayek are both back from Desperado. But this came out in September after Pirates of the Caribbean had opened in the summer. Seeing mm-hmm. this movie in the theater, audiences were fucking nuts for Johnny Depp. Like he, and yep. he's really good in this movie, but it's a very, it's Robert Rodriguez, obviously. So it's like a very showy movie in general. And like, he is just hamming it up in this movie. To it's, great it is another one of the mariachi movies, but it totally gets shown up by his character where it's like, he has like his eyes gouged he out. He sure does. He absolutely does. And then with the like goo dripping from his eyes, this like black goo dripping from his eyes, he goes and like, just like, mows down this uh a ton of people with like machine guns it's very like robert rodriguez like iconography it is it is the most robert rodriguez this is one of those movies where like somebody like gets shot and there's blood spatters on the lens and he leaves it in this is also i believe the credits on this were like shot uh what is uh shot chopped and whatever by robert rodriguez like it was very like very sort of like showy tarantino-esque also, yeah. Mickey Rourke is in this movie. I think this is the movie where Mickey Rourke just like carries around a tiny dog the whole time. And it was sure. just like his tiny dog. It's I... probably his dog, yeah. Or maybe I'm confusing that with Iron Man 2. But anyway, Mickey Rourke, whose face looks fully plastic in this movie. And I think this was also 
Remember when he was the bad guy in an Enrique Iglesias video? I feel like this was the same era. Was it Hero with Jennifer Love Hewitt? Yes, it is absolutely Hero with Jennifer Love Hewitt. And he's the bad guy. And it's wild as hell. Yeah. He is. He has a little... Okay, I just found the still. It's Mickey Rourke in like a cowboy hat and a cow skull bolero tie with a teeny little chihuahua in his arms that he, I swear to God, just like, Naturally. he was like, I'm not putting it down. You got to shoot it. So Rodriguez is probably just like, okay. Yeah. What a wild movie. Oh my God. Good job. All right. So as has been the new tradition, you are evil and I go somewhat easy. Well, okay. I first because- of all, you cleaned up on that one. You did not struggle too bad on that one. So you don't get to complain. Avita is not there. Okay, that's not my fault. It's your fault for not looking up Avita <laughs> enough on IMDb through Antonio Banderas's page. Um, anyway, anyway, we're talking about a movie starring Naomi Watts, Edward Norton. Naturally, I went to Birdman, yeah, you did. who is the star of Birdman, but one Mister Michael Keaton. Keaton. Great. Oh, I love this. Okay. Oh, now... Michael Keaton should definitely have an Oscar. Should definitely have an Oscar. Absolutely. And you know what? Birdman did so well, and Michael Keaton did not benefit from that in terms of Oscar, is bananas to me. I know. It's true. Okay. Um, I'm going to guess Birdman is one of them. Birdman is one of them. Is Beetlejuice one of them? Beetlejuice is not one of them. Okay. Is Batman one of them? No. Is Batman Returns one of them? <laughs> no, there are no that no man's bat. No there man's no bat. Batman's All right, well, I've guessed wrong enough times that you're going to have to give me years. All right, well, your uh, years are 2015, 2016, and 2017. Motherfucker. Look up old Michael Keaton movies, people. Jesus. All right, 2015 has got to be Spotlight. Spotlight. What are the other two years? Another movie that he should have had an Oscar for. Yes. What are the other two years? 2016, 2017. Is one of those the fucking founder? The founder. Jesus Christ. We should do the founder. We'll eventually do we'll eventually do the founder and we can have the Michael Keaton conversation. Was that 2016 or 2017? 2016. So we're still looking for 2017. So after he makes the fantastic trilogy of birdman spotlight and the founder michael keaton and this is too early for dumbo i never saw dumbo i think i'm gonna keep it that way i watched it when i got disney plus it's deeply okay it's like man talk unremarkable. about tim burton the trajectory of tim burton especially in the past decade two decades Especially everything after Sweeney Todd has been, like, one of the disappointments of my lifetime. Yeah. All right, so Keaton makes the comeback with Birdman and starts to get cast in a bunch of things. Is he the lead in this movie or no? He's got to be second build. Okay. I'm going to look it up and see if he is second build, but you will know why it makes sense that he would be second build in this. Uh Uh-huh. He is... He is he second is. build. Oh, oh, I know what this is. This is Spider-Man Homecoming. It is. Yeah. He's great in that movie. He's genuinely great. Married to movie. Married to current Real Housewife of Beverly Hills, Garcelle Bouvet in that movie. 
Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I liked that one. Everybody kind of flipped for Far From Home, and I don't get that. Um, I, I think Far From like Home is is good. I, I enjoyed Far From Home. I think Homecoming is the much more memorable of those two movies. Yeah. yeah. It's a sweet movie. Yeah. Though Michael Keaton, however, is a really crappy villain. <laughs> well, he's essentially like everything a... everything to do with uh, the villain movie, the villain in Homecoming blows but everything else is good he's a he's a profiteer who is sort of wrapped in the shroud of blue collar um you know the government took our jobs uh yeah grievance yeah it's a good movie it's a good movie it's a good performance i was happy with it yes all right cool can't believe Beetlejuice or the Batmans are not on his IMDb and the fucking founder is. That is so infuriating. <laughs> Jesus Christ. We will put you all on indefinite timeout for yeah, that. Seriously. Alright, good good job. Good. So uh next up on our Naomi Watts journey, and it's a journey, truly. <laughs> um wait what is our next one of the two our next one is diana oh boy which i've never seen i'm very excited very excited for us to dive into diana and for me to experience it for the first time but we'll have a special guest that you will have to follow us on twitter to find out who that will be when we do the episode announcement yes very fun good job good stuff fun returning guests all right. But I think for now, that is it for Naomi until next week. And that is our episode. If you want more This Head Oscar Buzz, check out our Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. And at, please mention, follow our aforementioned Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joe, where can people catch you painting more veils? <laughs> catch me painting veils on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. Catch me um, avoiding cholera studiously on Letterboxd. Uh, Joe Reed. Reed also spelled R-E-I-D. All right. And I am also on Twitter at Christy File. That's F-E-I-L. Also the same name under Letterboxd. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So please help us lift the veil on more listeners. That's all for this week, and we hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz and Diana. <laughs> Bye. So you better go back to your bars, your temples, your massage parlors. What night in Bangkok?